0: Thank mm-hmm. you. And inclusion on air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So We are in year three, I think it is, of the global COVID pandemic. And arguably now folks are talking about, um, of course, the global threat around monkeypox. So, um, you know, the world is still a bit of a mess. (laughs) But many of us have returned to some semblance of normal. Everything is open, um, folks are back to work, though many employers in office settings in particular have continued some work from home scenarios. Um, But students are largely back in the class and things like mandatory testing, mandatory vaccination are not necessarily as stringent as they were even a year ago. We're all just kind of moving on, pressing forward. What are we, is the question. So the speed with which uh, the world transitioned was really pretty remarkable. Um, And most folks were able to leverage existing tools and technology to maintain their lives while working from home. Um, Many tools we've relied on were tools that people with disabilities had persistently asked for to increase their access to life on the outside, whether that is in employment situations, just daily living, or in the academic setting. Now, pre-COVID, a lot of those requests might have been deemed unreasonable, right? So, you know, when we talk about accommodations, there's kind of, you know, reasonable accommodations. Well, then suddenly all of us were using these accommodations. Um, And now as we continue to construct our new version of normal, we're seeing a bit of a rollback and deeming many um, of those accommodations that we've all used for the last couple of years as now unreasonable once again. Um, That doesn't sound particularly fair or equitable now that those of us who are able or able-bodied or however we kind of come to our levels of ability, um, but it's not really fair or equitable to those of us who are just kind of able to move along with things. Um, So all of this really begs the question in what I call this pseudo- faux post-COVID world, what is a reasonable accommodation? So to discuss this with me today, I am so excited. Uh, Dr. Jay Domish, um, author of AABMC's. Reads first selection um, in 2020, yeah, the fall of 2020, Academic Ableism. Great book. If you haven't read it, go pick that up. It's, it's a game changer. Um, he was also one of our amazing keynote speakers at our 2021 virtual conference, Catalyze Conference. So with that, uh, Jay, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank
1: you very much. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, and especially for all the reasons that you outlined, because I think. <laughs> They're all things that we need to be talking about. And now's a really good time to be talking about them because yeah. we're getting ready to, to be back in classrooms um, or, or be back in teaching and learning settings quite soon. I think it's on everyone's mind. And we don't know what we're going to be looking at, right? Yeah. So I think the timing is really good, too.
0: Yeah, great, great. So for those of you um, uh, out there who don't know Jay uh Jay, uh, Jay could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah. So yeah, my name's Jay Dalmich. I'm a, a professor in, uh, uh, of English actually at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Waterloo is about a, an hour from Toronto. So we're in the greater kind of Toronto area. Uh, I'm a white dude, <laughs> middle-aged white dude. Uh, and I, uh, I just to describe what I look like, I wear, I'm wearing dark glasses. I have brown hair. I'm wearing a t-shirt today because it's hot up in the attic where I'm speaking to you from. Uh, And and yeah, my background is in disability studies. I I edit a journal called the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies, which is an open access journal um, and and online journal. uh, I encourage you to check it out. Um, And I I kind of have really been trying to, to bring together disability studies, which is kind of field within the university to bring the tools of disability studies to to bear on understanding what universities are and what higher education is and what its mission is and and who really is included and who's not. And and how we talk about and speak about things like equity, inclusion, diversity, um, decolonization, indigenization. And how those interact with disability in ways that are productive and in ways that are sometimes really quite harmful um, for, for folks who are, who are seeking the, the, all of the things that higher education can offer, um, including community, right? Including access to uh, knowledge and information and dialogue and power and just how important it is and how much energy we put into higher education And yet sometimes how um, we neglect to think about the cost that um, disabled students, staff, and faculty pay just to be included on campus. And I think like like Lisa said, um, like Dr. Greenhill said, that the truth is the pandemic, as we were saying just before we started, there's been all of these changes and pivots and rotations, and every time something's changed, I think we've learned new things about accessibility, but we've also learned new things about ableism. So we may have opened up some opportunities, but we've also come to understand and see some really um, entrenched attitudes, uh, ableist attitudes uh, uh, that, that are not going away. Um, and so that's what my, my life's work is, is, is um, fighting to expose some of that, um, but also fighting to make, create change.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, I really um, just, you know, when when uh, I and some of my colleagues originally um, stumbled across your book, uh, it was just such a game changer because um, one, for me, it um, gave voice to a lot of things that I had been thinking, and even some things as someone who is um, neurodivergent some things that I had personally experienced that just didn't have the language for, sure. <laughs> um, I didn't have the language for. And, um, and now, you know, as, as, at AAVMC, as we really start to try to, Um, wrap our heads around the ways in which ableism is um, so persistent in, I mean, one, daily life, but specifically in um, veterinary medical education. um, We're just really so, so grateful for your work. So with that, let's start with defining a few terms for our viewers and our listeners. Um, What is ableism? Sure. So
1: I think it's important to define it, right? Uh, I'm happy to be, be answering that question because I think one of the things that happens with disability is that people are afraid of getting things wrong, that they'll get the terminology wrong, that they, they're aware that the terminology changes and, you know, we're worried that we're going to say the wrong thing. Um, so I think defining terms is really important and powerful. I, I always try to talk about ableism in tandem with disabilism as two connected, but Different things, so uh, and doing that I think helps us understand what ableism, how how deep actually ableism goes, and how broad it broad it is. Um, But so disableism is maybe the simpler term, and I think it's what we mean a lot of the time when we talk about ableism. What disableism is is discrimination against disabled people um, because of the fact that they're disabled, right? It's it's assumptions and practices that promote the unequal treatment of people because of their disabilities. Um, you know, it negatively constructs the values around disability, but also the material circumstances for people with disabilities. Um, it's the stigma, right? That, that it's, it's this idea that there could be nothing worse than being disabled. And I think we all live with that, whether we're disabled or not. Um, there is a negative sense around disability and we look at so much of the language around disability and it gets used to mean something negative, right? In a wide variety of different spheres. Now that's connected, but different from ableism, right? Because instead of situating disability as bad, um, what ableism does is it really powerfully values able-bodiedness, It's all of the norms that that, that run from architecture through communication, through social interaction that suggest that we all need to be able-bodied and able-minded at all times. And that higher education is a perfect example of this because it's a structure that's built around striving for that kind of hyper-ability all the time. And that we're somehow neglecting um, ourselves and our communities and Education. If we're not constantly striving to be able-bodied, able-minded, right, and and so in that sense, ableism more kind of vaguely um, or or almost unconsciously um, constructs disability as a negative, right, as invisible, Mm -hmm. disposable, undesirable, right, while able-bodiedness is at once an ideal, but it's also the norm or the mean or the default. Um, and we, we, we punish people and ourselves when we fail to measure up to that ideal. Um, so I think, you know, that, that academia is really powerfully mandates that kind of able-bodiedness and able-mindedness. Even as it's a very diverse space where there are a lot of different ways to be in body and mind, mm-hmm. so many of the values, right, um, are, are kind of uh, wrapped in ableism. Um, so, that, that the distinction to me is important, right? Um, it's important to say that both of those things also are not just kind of bad words, right, or, or, or bad language or, or whatever, and, and not just to be policed. They're the kind of structures that make it unbelievably dangerous to live in a body or a mind that doesn't fit that ideal, Right. Yeah. Uh, Lydia, Lydia Brown writes that, you know, ableism is not some arbitrary list of, of stigma and, and bad words. It's violence. Right. It's a form uh, of structural yeah. danger. Right. Yeah. It creates, yeah. a, 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 a you know, so in any case, that that that's how I define those two things. And I hope that that's useful and helpful to people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it it, it it it's that structural piece, right? Like it's very much like when we talk about structural racism or we talk about, you know, this very um deeply rooted, this is kind of how we have envisioned the world and it excludes all of those people. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so we have um, at least in the U.S. and certainly in, in numerous other countries have something similar, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is, you know, supposed to offer protections um, um, and um, create, you know, that level playing field that we're all kind of aspiring to. Um, and there's this piece in there about, you know, hey, you get reasonable accommodations, <laughs> So what are reasonable accommodations, generally speaking, kind of what does that concept really mean?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say about reasonable accommodations is that over the course of time, that that the value-laden term there is reason, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, a philosopher can go have a field day on that that idea of reason, but it's very, very rarely located in the disabled person. They're not seen as capable of determining what they need and so we have a, a, a very complicated kind of tapestry of legalistic and medicalistic um decision makers right or, or structures um, that are used to to kind of construct that reason but it's so often imposed on disabled people it doesn't come from disabled people or disabled communities Um, and so the reason is always going to lie within that structure of ableism. The other piece for me about accommodations and I'm a rhetorician, so I like to take a word and then pull it apart. Right. So reason is one we could pull apart in a lot of different ways. And to me, the most important thing to say is that reason is not located in disabled subjectivity. Right. Mm -hmm. It's determined from without by experts and and the experts are working within medical and legal frameworks that that construct disability as something that needs to be cured or eradicated. Right. And so so many reasonable accommodations are designed to erase disability. Mm -hmm. Right. To make it go away rather than to celebrate it. And so that logic has its own kind of harm. And we see that in a lot of the the traditional types of accommodations that you might see in higher education or actually in any workplace. Um, They're not about valuing disability in and of itself. They're about making it invisible. And the other piece for me about accommodations is that they're almost always kind of after the fact. Mm. We don't plan for diversity, we react to it. And so long as we keep reacting to it, then the accommodations are there in service of the norm. So they're they're there to make sure we can keep doing things the way we've always done things. Uh, And accommodations in higher education are very, very much like that. They're not about changing the way we do things because we plan to have a lot of disabled students, staff, and faculty. They assume that When there's a disabled person who pops up, you hit them with an accommodation, it goes away so that you can keep doing things the way that you've always done them. Um, And I think that's what's been interesting about the pandemic is we haven't been able to do some things the way we've always done them. And uh, that's been really challenging for people. Uh, But I think the goal should be wherever we've had these kinds of accommodations, we need to stop giving them on on a piece by piece you know, whack-a-mole kind of basis. (laughs) And we need to begin saying, what do you need to do to plan for the future so that an accommodation is just part of the fabric of what we do in teaching, right? Yeah. Um, The other thing I guess I would say is that that can be a little bit of a dangerous argument. I think we'll always need to have the legal right to accommodation because we'll see that those rights are taken away if we don't continue to exercise them, right? Right. Yeah. But what's the logic then where we could have this right and we could also in a classroom, for example, every time there's an accommodation, say, how can I extend this to everybody, right? How can I, um, just like I do, I should do with every student who enters into the classroom, how can I change the classroom forever mm. <laughs> based on their uh, you know, their presence, their, their ongoing presence. And like I said, I think we react to disability instead of planning for it. And I could go through all of the numbers and the statistics, um, and the cost of doing that, right. The cost of doing that of reacting to disability is disabled students don't make it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, what you said about, um, accommodations being essentially a form of erasure, Right. Like, oh, okay, so we'll just give you this and that'll make the disability go away, which really is for everyone else's comfort. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That's for dominant culture's comfort. Um, And it also echoes, um, you know, uh, our most recent uh, podcast, which I think we did about two weeks ago, was on social colorblindness. Right. And so it's very similar. It sounds very similar to that where, oh, look, I don't even see the wheelchair because yeah. there's a ramp, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so you have access now and it's yeah. gone away. Yeah. And Hey, you got to
1: have the ramp, right? right? But, but if the ramp leads to, you know, only one spot in the classroom, if there's, if the ramp assumes that a, f- a professor would never need access, like, mm-hmm. you know, so, you yeah. need those things. Keep building them. Right. Yeah. Build from the build the structures from the beginning that don't need ramps. Right. It's easy to do, you know, and that's a metaphor, too. But um, but also I, I think um, you have to look beyond that because we're, we're constantly marking disability out in a way Um we're marking disabled students out for wearing out because the, the, the cost, the difficulty of accessing these accommodations is the other thing. So it's not just what is a reasonable accommodation. The biggest piece is what do you have to do? What kind of hoops do you have to jump through to get it? Uh, and when you look at those hoops, you understand they're not designed to be accessed. Right. They're designed to be difficult to get. Uh, Even though a lot of accommodations are actually really simple, basic things, Mm -hmm. the the legalistic and medicalistic hurdles that you have to go over to get them are huge. Anybody who's ever got an accommodation, myself included, knows how expensive it is to get a diagnosis. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, And then that diagnosis is also stigmatizing. So you're very careful with how you disclose, how you use it. I would say we've got hundreds of thousands of folks in higher education right now with diagnoses that they will never share yeah. with anyone else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. In part, maybe because they see it's not going to get them very much mm-hmm. or that there's going to be so much work involved to even <laughs> see whether they get something that's worth getting, but yeah. also because they know what the stigma is.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that you raised such an important point about, um, you know, getting diagnosis, especially for things, um, you know, kind of that fall under uh, kind of the neurodiverse categories. Right. I mean, my daughter, uh, I've been really open and transparent. Both of us have some um, issues with neurodivergence, but, you know, getting accommodations for her when she was in, in grade school. I mean, I could wait the eighteen months for the pre-testing <laughs> that the county would have provided. Yeah. Or I could do what I did and like get the testing done in six weeks and just pay out of pocket um, yeah. um an inordinate amount of well, money un- an
1: unbelievable to just move larger. the system
0: along, right? To just move it along so that she didn't suffer, right? And so um, it was really, really challenging. And I know that there are probably a lot of parents who are watching and listening. You've been through this trying to get that, you know, um, those uh, accommodations. And
1: that's and- for folks oh. like us who have access to those yeah. things think about undocumented students think about international wow. students you know in Canada there's an unbelievable healthcare care crisis just in terms of getting a, a family doctor wow you, know, you don't go to a walk-in clinic to start the process right. of getting a psych ed. Yeah. or you know yep. I mean you do people do because yeah. they have to right. um but but it's 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 not as simple as it gets made to seem. No. And, and the other thing to say is like the, the public discourse around this is that there are way more disabled students now than ever before. There's this wide, wide range of wild diagnoses that are not real, you know? And the truth is, no, you know, there are an unbelievable number of students who. Got even had disability accommodations in high school Mm -hmm. who aren't getting them in college or university because of the difficulty of doing it because of the stigma, because of the structure, right? um, That makes it. And I should have said this earlier, but, you know, ableism to me, I always say ableism is, is very rarely alone, Mm. right? Ableism is almost always um, leveraged uh, across axes of, sexism and Mm -hmm. racism Mm -hmm. and and ageism right Mm -hmm. and and just it's so useful yeah unfortunately in constructing certain populations as less deserving right Mm -hmm. or in, in creating barriers to change within our institutions um and so i think we always have to look at it from those angles too we can understand it kind of like philosophically, but in practice, it's almost always disproportionately impacting, you know, folks from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, yeah. you know, yeah. first generation uh, college and university students, um, the, the kinds of students for whom post-second, postgraduate programs have never seemed possible possible yeah right? i know that's the case in, in veterinary medicine very much it's like how do you get more people to consider that a possibility when just getting through a, a four-year degree takes two years longer yeah. students graduate with up to you know 60 percent more debt
0: yeah.
1: um disabled
0: students do you know so yeah. in any case yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. So, so thinking pre-COVID, what kinds of things, you know, just generally speaking? I mean, I know that there's a whole menu of, of, yeah. of accommodations, um, some of which are kind of based in evidence and some aren't. But you know, what kinds what kinds of things were considered reasonable accommodations for disabled students, faculty, staff, you know, uh, pre-COVID?
1: Yeah, okay, so terrific question, right? The truth is, more than three quarters of accommodations offered in the United States were the exact same accommodation, which was extended time on tests and exams. Um, The average operating budget of a a disability services office at an American school was around $257,000 a year. And so the vast majority of that budget and the energy and the expertise, right, and labor. Of the people working in those offices was just stuck in this very old educational regime of we've higher education is testing uh high stakes high anxiety testing and we're making these little temporary adjustments to that testing and we're spending so much time and energy doing that right and so you get stuck in in that uh despite the fact that testing is a huge creator of barriers, right? For particularly for people with learning disabilities, mental health related disabilities, anxiety, uh, attention, to, you know, disabilities. The testing was and continues to be pred- the predominant way through which accommodations get offered, right? But the truth is, so I, I always say a couple of things about this. One, I mean, that's just a huge waste of time and resources. It doesn't mean that people don't benefit Sure, from sure. extended time, sure. it doesn't mean that they don't benefit from having a distraction-free space in which to write tests and exams. But the idea that we don't offer everybody those things all the time is what's absurd, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's this this uh, I don't know, like like uh, it's this combination of like a, a assembly line version uh, of education, you know, like where you clock in and out. And the truth is it, there's nothing like the barriers um, per, um, created by testing in actual careers. Yeah. And I think we should think about this. So that's one of the challenges I would have to people working in veterinary medicine. What are the testing like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> challenges in a career? Yeah. You know, there, there may be some there and we can come up with some examples, but pretty few. And so why are we spending so much time, teaching people how to shape their learning around something that doesn't have very much bearing in their future career, you know? And I guess the other piece of that would be um, when we talk about the teaching that we do, you know, if you go on the website of your university and you see the pictures of experiential learning and hands-on learning and innovative, you know, lab environments and, you know, practicums and all this stuff. Nobody, none of those, nobody has on their university website a picture of students taking exams. <laughs> that is not the future of higher education, right? Yeah. Nobody gets tenure by saying, I'm really great at giving exams. You know, We say that we have these innovative assignments. We say we have these ways for students co- to collaborate with one another. The whole picture and vision of higher education that we use to promote it um, is very different yeah. from testing. Yeah. And I think we want to be doing more than testing. But we need to understand, pre-COVID, we've, we've put disability services and disabled students in the role of having to accommodate themselves to this way of learning that's going out the back door. Mm. And it also means then that we don't spend enough time or resources or energy making the new stuff accessible. Wow. And that's a big problem. Yeah. You know, if yeah. we could, if we could make the newer stuff, the experiential learning, the innovative stuff accessible, then we're starting to do something that really shifts the paradigm. Right. But if we don't, and we keep disabled students stuck in just asking for extra time on an exam, then there's something, there's a real mismatch there. And again, I, I, I don't mean to be mean, but if you're somebody who teaches in one of those innovative ways and you keep getting letters from disability services that say the accommodations that extended time on tests and exams, you got to do more mm. just because you can think, Oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm a great teacher. I don't give test time tests or exams, or you can say there's a mismatch there. And I need to find accommodations that are going to work in the kind of classroom
0: that I value. Mm. So important. So important. Um, so, you know, what are some of your observations on how we all kind of just pivoted back in March, 2020, right? We were all in the office or somewhere in the classroom and then we weren't.
1: Yeah. Well, you said it at the beginning, so many of the things that we all of a sudden just all had to do uh, like offer, you know, um, uh, transcripts of lectures Mm -hmm. or caption videos or, uh, you know, offer asynchronous access to course material. Yeah, um, Those were things disabled people were asking, disabled students were asking for, for a very, very long time. And we're always told no. And were actually constructed as a problem for even asking for those things. Right. So there is a pre-2020 study done. Uh, the biggest study that's ever been done that actually asked students with disabilities what they wanted was done at the University of Illinois and it was in a faculty of engineering. So a STEM program, which I think is important because STEM is behind.
0: (laughs) Yes, I'll
1: just be honest, right? So there were uh, 49 different courses, right? 303 students were surveyed um, and it showed that disabled students well before the pandemic were asking for recorded um, lectures as videos, transcripts for those videos and for lectures, as well as course textbook, instructor notes and slides, and course materials, basically, that they could engage with offline or outside of the 50 to 80 minutes of a class,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? Those were the, and it's ironic, right? Those were the things they said they wanted. And those things are actually not that hard to offer, but they were not being offered them. Then all of a sudden we pivoted. And you know what? That's exactly what we did. And it wasn't easy, and uh, instructors were not properly compensated for all of the extra labor that they that they did, right? And that's a problem, and it's an ongoing problem. But we did do that, right? And so I think that's one of my biggest arguments: is keep doing that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It's okay for you now to construct those things as means of accessibility for all students and particularly for disabled students. If you keep doing those things, we won't continue to lose tens to hundreds of thousands of disabled students every year. It will help.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. In its own way. There are other things we can do too. Right. Um, The other thing I encourage people to think about is, you know, if you're, if you're an academic who also has a research program, think of the things that you did during this pandemic to keep producing your research right yeah yeah a lot of those things just increase access period yeah think yeah. of the things that we did to continue delivering labs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right yeah. um we can keep doing those things mm-hmm. uh and that's i think a relatively easy place to start is a lot of the labor's already been put in and it was difficult but in what ways can we continue to do that? In what ways can we can we ask to be valued for that work? Right. Yeah. Uh, and can we make sure that we value one another in things like tenure and promotion review, right? In things like annual performance review and start counting those things as as, as labor that that should be validated because it is going to increase access. Yeah,
0: so important. So important. I mean, I think that that um you know, these these uh, what was really shocking to me, um, you know, our office, we had some work from home. Um, some of us work from home for um, a while Pre-pandemic, and then you know we had made an office decision to um, to to not do that anymore. We weren't going to have telecommuting and working from home. Everybody was going to be in the office. And like six weeks later, the world, the universe said, "No! Not only are the few people that were working from home going to continue to work from home, everybody will for an extended period of time." And you know we we figured out how to make it work, but it required all of us to really shift our mindset, right? It really required a mindset shift. And, um, you know, there's a there's a wonderful colleague um, who used to be uh, the associate dean at uh, Texas A&M, uh, College of Veterinary Medicine, Kenita Rogers. And she talks about kind of the growth mindset idea. You know, they've had um, a student, they graduated a student a few years ago who uses a wheelchair. And, you know, she was like, no, we admitted her and she had a wheelchair, and we f- had to figure out how to make it work. And, you know, um, she, she really is so eloquent talking about this, thinking, well, you know, we've realized, wow, do, does she need to walk the horse around to assess Gate, or should she ask a tech, um, you know, a veterinary technician? To walk the, the horse around so they can assess gait. And is that the proper use for a paraprofessional? Yes, that is a proper, proper mm-hmm. role. And maybe, maybe all of the students should learn how to how to use, you know, other veterinary professionals in um, you know appropriate ways that increase accessibility. Yeah. You know, and it was really about kind of just shifting that mindset. Um, now, we all know that during the pandemic, there were lots of folks that didn't want to shift, yes. <laughs> had trouble shifting, yeah. had trouble pivoting. Um, and so, you know, I think that that we've all seen there were folks that kind of this back to normal has always been a, a churning undercurrent. But now, um, you know, today we are as close to back to normal, I think, as whatever this new normal is. Um, so what are you seeing? What are some of the trends that you're seeing? Is sure. there, is there so, a rollback? Yeah. I mean,
1: the other thing is like, I think maybe the biggest trend is um, planning for flexibility. Mm. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I've taken over a role in my department as chair. And so I have more of a, of a responsibility to, to help folks who are getting ready to teach for us in a month uh, we begin in, in early September, um, what's the fall term going to be going to look like, you know, and it's tough, but I need to say to them all, we need to plan with the same kind of flexibility that we approached winter term last year, 2022, that we approached fall term 2021, right. That, that, that flexibility and the ability to, uh, plan a class two or three different ways, which is incredibly labor intensive, right? Um, But we've now done it a few times. So hopefully some of that stuff can be reused. Uh, I think that that's really important. Um, So we plan for our own flexibility. And that's that in a way is like psychologically uh, or maybe even philosophically, the easier piece for instructors. Okay, I can plan to deliver this a few different ways. And I think if we do that, then... Um, some of those accommodations that I talked about earlier, in mm-hmm. terms of recorded lectures, transcripts. You know, if you record a lecture, you can generate a very good transcript very easily. You know, yeah. and then you have it. <laughs> yeah. And then you can just share it with everybody every time. Yeah. Um, and they will access it, I promise you. If you have an online shell, you'll be able to see more students will read the transcript than watch the video. Why? Uh-huh. Because then they can learn at their own pace. Then they can absorb the vocabulary, right? They can absorb the concepts. They can go back and reread things. Um, invariably, that is really helpful to students, you know. Um, and to me, then, what if we think about planning with their own flexibility in mind? Then we can begin thinking about planning to allow students flexibility given the uncertainties. Yeah. Okay. And that's a bigger piece. It's harder, mm-hmm. but I think that flexibility means we. Understand our students will need to learn at their own pace, which means they need to have asynchronous access to course materials. And again, that's as simple as sharing our our notes, right? It's as simple as saying students cannot be expected right now or really maybe ever to just learn whatever we give them in 50 minutes. Yeah. They need time to digest materials. They cannot be expected to ask questions right away. Uh, or generate responses right away. They need some time to think through, right? Yeah. And, and they're juggling a lot of different cognitive demands, intellectual demands. And so just give, just seeing our classes not as things that happen in 50 minute chunks, but as things that happen over a 16 minute a 16 week <laughs> kind of landscape, yeah, I think is very big because students will get sick, unfortunately, right? Uh, students will have folks they need to care for. Mm-hmm. Uh, students have other demands. Student workload is getting huge, right? And yeah. so, give the the same grace that we we need to give to ourselves, uh, and flexibility we need to build in for ourselves to be able to get yeah. prepared for uncertainty. Are those are the same things I think we can extend to students? So that's one piece. Um, participation can happen at any time, right? Mm-hmm. Deadlines are often artificial, right? If the goal is for the students to do the work and learn the material and, and be able to move on to the next piece, why do we care when it happens, mm. you know? Mm. Uh, I urge you to look at the deadlines that you face or have faced over the past two and a half years and really be honest, how many of them have you been able to hit given the context um, yeah. of what we're living yeah. in, Yeah. You know? So, Extending that same grace to students is important. Part of that to me is assign less. And that's very hard, especially in graduate programs, professional programs, but it's so important. Uh, We've seen creep over the past couple of decades and student workload is out of hand. And at a certain point, you cannot expect students to learn. So you have to make choices. Um, And I, I believe that if we were really being more efficient, we would assign less. Uh, that means fewer assignments. That means some assignments that are ungraded or that are optional, right? Uh, that lessens the workload on us of grading and assessment so that we can do more connecting with students. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, you know, there's a, an, there's not an unlimited amount that we can give and there's not an unlimited amount that students can give. So to me, um, Assessing less means I can connect with students and communicate with them more. So in my own classes, I have always had four major assignments. During the pandemic, I went down to three. And what I saw was students learned more from those three assignments total Mm -hmm. than they ever learned from the four. And I'm much closer to going down to two than I am to ever going back to four. Wow. And I think that's actually something we can work on individually, but I would also urge people to look at departmentally, right, within your cohort of instructors teaching the same courses, right, or teaching courses that are stepped one after the other. Yeah. Can you look at it and say, to begin with, how can we take 10% out here? And if you do it as an experiment, I promise you, you will see students learn more, yeah. not less. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, And I'm sure that there are faculty um, and even practitioners, um, you know, practitioners who are, you know, seasoned, shall we say, who, who, you know, went to vet school um, in the snow uphill both ways with a raggedy wagon. Um, This is somewhat heresy. And yet we also hear the same thing in K-12, right? That homework is just, not um actually resulting in increased learning, right? Actually low less work actually um, creates that cognitive space. And you're right, these uh these uh uh deadlines, which I do typically like deadlines and I'm deadline driven. Um, but but I'm deadline driven because of my anxiety. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Right. It triggers the anxiety. And so, I mean, I I tell people that deadlines are actually so problematic for those of us who experience um, 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 things like depression and anxiety that, you know, we are fully functional. People think we're doing great. Ten years ago this summer, I had major life changing surgery and I wrote a paper and delivered it on time Mm -hmm. from my hospital bed. I look back on that experience now and go, I should have been asking for more pain medicine. Like, what was I doing? <laughs> yeah.
1: I have I have a very similar experience. I won't get into it too much. But I remember being in a similar situation and, and a, a, a professor thinking that they were being helpful, sending me an email just saying, here are all the things that you have due. Right. Just to help you keep track of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I mean, yeah. we, we all live in b- bodies and we all have yeah. lives. Right. And if it's not, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of a trite thing to say that we'll all become disabled at some point in our lives. Right. Except that we will. Yeah. Right. Um, and we'll all care for people uh, with disabilities throughout yeah. our lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we we need, there needs to be that kind of sense of grace, right? Yeah. Uh, when you look at an undergraduate, um, at, at any undergraduate career, it's not a pathway of learning that just goes, you know, upwards the whole yeah. way. We learn from the the bumps along the way, the ups and downs. Yeah. Um, we do learn from from failure, right? And there has to be some ability to take risks as well. Yeah. Um, so to me, sometimes it's, it's not, people can hold on to, um, deadlines, sure. right. But, but maybe they don't need to be accompanied with harsh penalties, uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause sometimes it's not the deadline. The deadline can be a helpful structure. It's the, it's the harshness of the penalty, the penalty. right. Yeah. Acting yeah. as though we don't ask for deadline extensions all the time. You know, yeah. we do, and nobody ever comes, you know, to our office and says, I'm going to be back in 50 minutes and I expect that paper, right? Or yeah. that podcast to be produced yes. or whatever. Yes, They don't. And we would not be able to work under the many, many of us would, would have a really hard time working under those circumstances. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say is very, very few engineering firms, nobody walks in and says, put your pencils down, whatever bridge you design, we're building it tomorrow. Right. Or a veterinary OR. Yes. Nobody walks in and says, you're done, you know, finish up. No, we we, we build in the ability to do this well. Um, And and the ability to know and understand ourselves as learners, the time we need to revise, right? When we struggle, when we hit writer's block, right? Right. we need to give students the room to learn those things for themselves. Uh, And I think the closer that the environment is that they're learning to the the, the career or the world they want to build themselves um, when they leave, uh, the better. Because otherwise we're teaching them to adapt to something that has no real world significance. Unfortunately, I think timed high stakes testing has very little, uh, it's not something that's replicated Yeah. Um, For the course of our lives. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, So as always, folks, I um, am big on social media. I love, love, love following a number of folks. And I actually happened to stumble across a thread today um, and prepping for this where folks were talking about you know, how are they um, providing uh, accommodations and how are they kind of trying to figure out how to make their classes more accessible? And so um, this person is uh, Sean Duffy, pro Duff. Uh, yesterday he tweeted I've made my lectures available in live stream and podcast. Hello, sure. if someone had actually just like uploaded their like <laughs> the audio, that would be awesome. Um, and exam uh, online examinations. And it says it doesn't just help students with infection um, for COVID or monkeypox or whatever, um, but mothers who just gave birth who still want to engage, folks who experience injuries, and folks who need flexibility in their schedules to cover coworkers who get sick. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I and I think it's not going to necessarily work for everybody. Yeah. But there's this this concept in disability rights his, history and the universal design movement and other places called positive redundancy. Mm. Which is this idea that saying it again, repeating ourselves is always valuable, right? And recreating things across modes is always valuable, right? The ways that some people may be able to engage in print Aren't shared by everybody, you know. Um, And so, for some students, being able to be there and 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 be in the room for the lecture is great. For other students, they're not going to get it. It's not going to sink in until they've listened to the podcast on the bus, you know, on the way there, on the way home, or whatever it is. Um, And the bottom line is, if the goal is for students to learn and show what they know and contribute. Who cares how they get there, yeah. right? If you care about how they get there, you're very likely creating a barrier, right? Ooh. And so, so I th- unfortunately that sounds a little harsh, but I think no, it's believable
0: though. It's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, I
1: bet maybe a much better way of saying it is you. You will be guaranteed to be removing barriers for students if you offer things across modalities, and it's not that hard to take a video and turn it into a podcast, to take an mp3 and turn it into a transcript. It's just a little bit of extra labor, right? I know even even that book, Academic Ableism, right? It's online, it's open access, it's free. But we also then created an audiobook version, right? And I do hear from people who say, I really wanted to read this book, but I can't read an academic book like that, it's, it's too long. It's too dense. There's too much going on. But when you made an audiobook version, I was like, okay, now I will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then again, you've, you've removed a barrier for somebody, whether you knew it or not.
0: Yeah. And again, I'm so glad that we started with that text for AAVMC Reads um, because I have str- I struggle. And so I was like, yes, um, one of the requirements of our book selections is that it has to be an audiobook. And there are so few academic books that are available um, you know, an audio version and and they're just missing out. They're so missing out um, because there is a, a population, one that needs it, but yeah. then there's also a population that just wants it, <laughs> sure. yeah. you know, and they might buy both, even though textbooks are absurdly expensive. So, you know, as we kind of uh, are, again, trying to get out of this pandemic and, um, you know, we know that we have more disabled people now, um, as we emerge from the pandemic, than than we had before. Right, we're dealing with um, long, a lot more people with long COVID, and we have no idea where that's going um, over the long haul. And you know, so you know, I'm kind of curious. Do you think that we are more ableist now than before? we have an opportunity to change. So yeah. yes, be optimistic. But as we roll as we start to see this rollback, do you think that we are at risk for becoming more rigid?
1: I, I would hope not. I mean, I don't the, the thing I'm not it's very hard to predict the future. But I, I can say I can say we've changed. We've changed more over the past almost 30 months than we did over two decades. In terms of understanding, accommodation and access, and making changes that were tangible, and so much of that was stuff that that people were were very resistant to changing, right? And to me, it's not a small thing; um, it's a big thing, and uh, that that we ch- made changes, yeah, <laughs> because it proved we could. Yeah. And higher education is unbelievably conservative and resistant to change. We keep doing the same things over and over again, even when they're not like, we're not really even testing their efficacy. We yeah. would never do that in a, in a lab. Yeah. Uh, we're much more rigorous than that. Um, mm-hmm. But, but I think I would encourage people to to see and, 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 con- and conceptualize the benefits um, because the force against retaining this change will come from upper administration who are worried that changes to higher education will impact their bottom line. Right. Mm-hmm. And my prediction would be that won't work that we actually have a cohort of students now who get constructed somehow as lazy, right. As, as unwilling to, to come to class in person, uh, as all of these other things, um, but I think they're, they're, they're going to assert their needs as yeah. learners. Yeah. And if we don't meet them, they'll go elsewhere. Um, and that's just the truth. Right. And so, uh, I don't think that these are things you just put away on the other hand, rapid change is tough yeah, and, and there will be some repercussions, right. And there will be, Folks who really fight back hard against these things, and in those cases, we'll see ableism. But I would say it's ableism that's always been there. Yeah, it's just been a little bit hidden from us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That might be a that. So there's a very bleak way for me to say this. One would be if we're seeing more ableism, we're just seeing it.
0: Ah, uh, it's
1: in there. It, it's been experienced in subtle and structural ways, very much. Right. It maybe is exposed more now than it has been in the past. But on the other hand, if we're seeing increases in accessibility, people are also going to come to understand the benefits of that. You know, so often my, like, so often my argument to people was, please just try one small thing. <laughs> That's not a very radical <laughs> perspective, right? Yeah. But what I was saying is, please just try one small thing to increase access, and you will see the benefit to you and to all your students. Because I believed it, yes. and I still do, and I think that that's what's. I think that that over the over the long term, over the next four or five years, people will see that the amount of effort that there is to make some of these smaller changes is not huge, and that the benefits are large. Yeah. Uh, and the truth is. Higher, there's a lot of people for whom higher education was has not been considered a possibility. Yeah. There's a huge population of people who who were not succeeding in higher education mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. simply because of barriers that were in place that, that have just been there for too long. Yeah. Um, and so what will happen is that the, we the higher education will change. It okay. won't look like Harvard in the 50s. And I think that's good. I think that's important. Right. Um, But there, obviously there are always, there's always um, quick radical change is difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Always. And in every setting, Um, lots of great feedback in the, uh, in the chat, folks are like, yes, yes. Um, uh, Your, your comment on, um, you know, if you're concerned about how they get there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you might be building a fence. Uh, yeah, that resonated with some folks here. Definitely, there's many paths to getting somewhere. Um, so yes, that was a a, a great comment. Um, so uh, as we kind of get ready to to start thinking about wrapping up, we know that um, at least I noticed at least that disability advocacy was more visible than I ever, yeah. um, you know, uh, recognized during the pandemic. Like, you know, that pivot where, you know, suddenly we were all Zooming and teaming and doing all the things that folks have been asking for for a long time. Um, there was a lot of, oh, so now we can have Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <lectures."> <laughs> now that all you people are at home, right? Um, but it's still still, uh, and, as, you know, there's still um, many decisions about what's needed to be successful, really still focus on those of us who are considered able-bodied or have invisible disabilities. Um, so, what can we really um, do to amplify, um, you know, the need to root out ableism? Um, certainly, you know, you mentioned that hey, faculty, veterinary faculty, I'm talking to you, change that one thing. What is that one thing that you can change? But what else can we do to just really increase um, the, the discourse around this topic?
1: Yeah. So I think it goes back to that very first question you had about reasonable, right? Mm-hmm. Whose reason, right? Who, who are we asking? Who's included in the decision-making? And I just think it has to be disabled people at the center, Right. I'm seeing new disability cultural centers at places like the University of Texas at Austin. Um, That's such an important uh, addition to something like a disability services office. Disability services office is important. It does its own thing. Right. But it's within that medical and legalistic Mm -hmm. sphere. It's not in the disability culture sphere. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not saying To to disabled students, what do you need? Yeah. Right. And that's what we were ignoring for so long. And when we changed, it wasn't because we were listening to disabled students. It's because we had a pandemic. That's what I think has to change. Right. The input of disabled students, staff and faculty whose rights need to be protected. Right. But whose input will be huge if we listen. Yeah. Um, And that means, like you said, on Twitter, go and follow who Lisa tells you to follow. (laughs) Trust Dr. Greenhill, right? Like you can learn a ton, right, from that engagement. Invite these folks to be part of conversations on campus, right? Uh, Plug into the disabled students on campus and support them as a community and as a group, not just as individuals, right? Um, So that they have input. In everything from architecture through to, you know, big things like the curriculum.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and and I think that's that, that would be the biggest thing to me. Because I think I never thought of it this way. But, like, we did not make these changes based on actually listening to disabled students. We made a lot of them by accident. That's not a formula for continued useful change. A mm-hmm. formula for continued useful change is asking and listening to the people who are impacted, right. And giving them the agency and, and the, the um, power, right. To have yeah. a shaping role. Uh, and that, that needs to be all students. Right. And yeah. so uh, I think that's the, the, the truth is if we change things by accident, then there's no guarantee that we're going to continue changing them in ways that are useful and helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have to build democratic structures Um, that -hmm. listen and that center marginalized voices.
0: Yes, 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 and more (laughs) yes. Thank you so much. And one more thing, I just want to add before I wrap up um, to our folks. We spend so much time in veterinary medicine, Jay, talking about um, well-being, right? And we spend a lot of time, as a result, talking about mental health and and you know how do we do this and how, how do we do this and how do we do that and how do we um, you know reduce burden on students in particular, but also vet- other veterinary professionals. And and two things, I think I, I want our viewers and listeners. To, to understand one. Um, you know, mental health challenges are, um, are disabling in many ways, right? Um, they are misable, um, they are disabling in many ways. But the other thing is if we don't really think about this in a holistic way, um, you know, all of our efforts related specifically around well-being actually further marginalizes yeah. the groups that we're trying to help. Yeah. And, and I think that we really, um, you know, need to think about um, how we go about veterinary medical education and certainly other disciplines as well in, in very holistic ways because, you know, it, it is Okay, I'm going to take this one thing out of here, but then the scale is, you know, slammed on another on another marginalized population, um, or even the one that you were trying to help. And so I think that it's really important for us to think about these kinds of things um, and um, and be really mindful of of uh, giving grace. So thank you, thank you for that suggestion too. Giving grace is a big recommendation on this podcast. <laughs>
1: I love it. Yeah, I I think exactly what you said, like um, the the National College Health Assessment showed two things in the last time they did their big survey, right? Mm -hmm. One was that students were experiencing uh, mental health challenges as disabling Mm -hmm. in ways that we've never seen before. A, A huge increase in this cohort in that impact of, and experiencing higher education itself as disabling in that way, right? Combined with the second biggest trend, which is this co- is a cohort of students who are less likely to seek help. Mm. So I always want to remind people that because there's only so much you can see. And what you have to assume, right, is that there are a lot of students there who will not explicitly ask for help until they reach the point of crisis or until we just don't see them anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're they're gone, right? We, we've lost them. Um, and if you, if you enter the classroom with that perspective, then you begin to understand that we have a responsibility that is, like you said, bigger, broader, more holistic um, to, to change what we're doing, right? Uh, otherwise, we're ignoring those trends and they'll, they'll, they will be exacerbated. I think the pandemic has made those things, like you said, uh, more, more difficult, not yeah. less so. Yeah. So hopefully some of the things we talked about today can be useful yeah. to people. I bet in the in the comments and things people have some more suggestions of their own. Uh-huh. Right. Or once this gets posted, I yeah. think that would be the thing I would say is let's share ideas. Yes. Right. What else can we do? What do you do? What's the one thing that you do in your classroom or in your your, um, you know, your role on staff or, or at, the, at yeah. the institution that that you've seen really helps? And we got to keep sharing those things. Um, and, and trying, right, uh, yeah. to change. Yeah.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. Um, yes. And uh, this last comment, comment, and kindness and grace are important cornerstones. Yes, yes. So thank you for that, skill one, um, commenting on the live chat. So this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. It's my guest, Dr. J. Dalmidge. Thank you so much um, for this really engaging and, and fun conversation. Uh, everyone, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to like uh, and Follow us on Facebook. We're at AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. Thanks so much, and stay tuned for our next show. We'll be uh, in about a week on land acknowledgments. Uh, AABMC has a new one, and we're really excited about rolling that out. So be sure to check us out in a week. Take care. Thank you.